Well, as we continue this morning in God's Word in the Gospel of, of Matthew, uh, a gospel that focuses on the ministry of Christ uh, through the coming of his kingdom, the establishment, the inauguration of his kingdom, this kingdom that is broken into the world, and a focus on the formation of disciples. Uh, we're into chapter 8 now, Matthew chapter 8. As you're turning there, I'd begin with a question, and the question is, how would you describe, in your own words, how would you capture the ministry of our Lord Jesus? What words would you use in a sentence or two to capture the ministry of our Lord? Well, Matthew has done this for us in more than one place. If you turn back to chapter 4, verse 23, we read this. After Jesus had begun his ministry preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is present. Matthew records this. Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. But then Matthew doesn't just capture it there. He captures it again if you turn forward to chapter 9, verse 35. There it reads... And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Almost the exact same words as back in chapter 4, verse 23. But do you notice the two main aspects that Matthew is capturing to define the ministry of our Lord? Teaching and preaching and healing and restoring in both of those verses. And between these two verses, the end of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 9, Matthew focuses on those two aspects. So we have just finished for a number of weeks focusing on the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is Jesus preaching and teaching about what it means to be a kingdom, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. That's the first aspect of Jesus' ministry. And now the shift, the focus shifts in chapters 8 and 9 to that second major part of Jesus' ministry, healing and restoring people physically. And so that's where we are headed. And in reflecting upon this, this text, chapter 8, I thought it's no coincidence that through the history of the church, and particularly the history of the church in our own nation, the two institutions and two organizations primarily that the local church has invested much in has been both colleges and hospitals. Colleges, uh, schools, places of learning and education. Think of colleges such as Harvard or Yale. uh, Very much began with a Christian conviction and Christian worldview, as well as hospitals, restoring, helping people. These reflect the two ministries Uh, of our Lord Jesus. So we listen now to uh, God's word. Matthew 8, we'll read verses 1 through uh, 17. Listen now to God's word. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, 
But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy, worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew begins this chapter uh, with those words, When he, Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. It's a great transition and it's a great reminder that, that we as the church are called not only to be up on the mountain, sitting before the word of Christ and hearing his instruction, but we come down from the mountain into the valley of people's lives because that's where people live. That's what we see our Lord Jesus doing. He comes down from the mountain into the valley of people's lives. People have uh, very sincere uh, needs and pains. And, and so we see for two whole chapters our Lord ministering to people amidst their own physical ailments and diseases and personal uh, pains. Uh, when our family was, was out west, one of the books that I read was called uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Vrogop, uh, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Uh, the opening words I want to read to you, the opening words of the foreword by Johnny Erickson Tata. She wrote this, When a broken neck ambushed my life and left me a quadriplegic, I felt as though God had smashed me underfoot like a cigarette. At night, I would thrash my head on the pillow, hoping to break my neck at a higher level and thereby end my misery. After I left the hospital, I refused to get out of bed. I told my sister, just close the drapes, turn out the light, and shut the door. My paralysis was permanent, and inside, I died. You don't have to be in a wheelchair to identify. You already know that sad situations sometimes don't get better. Problems don't always get solved. Conflicts don't get fixed. Children die. Couples divorce and untimely deaths rock our world and shake our faith. No matter what personal pains 
or hardships, illnesses, brokenness that we might feel this morning, today, or tomorrow, or in time to come. These three individuals in Matthew chapter 8, a leper, a paralytic, and a mother-in-law are pictures for us that Matthew is presenting of where hope is to be found. That, that there's something and someone held out before us in the midst of the tension between two things that we feel as Christians in our lives oftentimes. And that is the tension between personal pain and the promises of God. Personal pain and the promises of God. And what Matthew was holding out before us is that in the midst of that tension, there is a trustworthy redeemer. There is someone that we are called to rest and trust in, in our lives. And that we are to pursue with all of our might. This one who is a redeemer, who is and who will bring a restoration to all things. That this kingdom will have a consummation, but yet it has begun. And there's three simple questions I want us to consider as we think about these narratives. One, why does Jesus heal? Why does Jesus restore? Two, for whom does he heal and restore? Why, for whom, and how? How does he heal or restore? It's not insignificant that a major part of our Lord Jesus' ministry on earth Throughout the Gospels, and all four of them, is administering physical healing to people. Now, to be sure, at the heart of our Lord's ministry was the redemption, the salvation that he accomplished through his perfect obedience to the Lord, to his Father, through his sacrificial death on the cross, in which he shed his blood for the remission of sins, and through his resurrection from the dead. That's how Paul captures the good news of the Gospel. Indeed, that's the heart of the good news. But have you noticed that in each of the gospel, uh, there's a whole lot between the birth of Christ and the death of Christ. That the gospel authors don't make a beeline from his birth or even the very beginning of his ministry to his death. The majority of their time in the gospels, the greatest percentage is spent on Passion Week, the last week of his ministry on earth to be sure. But there is much that fills the chapters of the gospel, and much of it is filled with physical healings and ministry to the personal, emotional, and physical pains that people are feeling. Why is this? I think Matthew wants us to see that just as Christ's teaching ministry, his authoritative teaching ministry, there in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, was an evidence of the establishment of his rule on earth. Just as his authority in teaching was evidence of the kingdom's presence, so his power over disease, his power over creation, over people's physical pains, was evidence that the kingdom was ushered in. He was, in essence, I think, flexing his authoritative muscles. He's putting his foot down to communicate just who it is uh, that is in charge and who it is that's in charge not only not only over the spiritual realm or the supernatural realm but over creation itself this is our father's world the spiritual world and this physical world including our physical bodies i think he's flexing his authority 
communicating his authority. It happens in so many uh, great Western films. There's a point of conflict that arises, and there's some kind of confrontation, a, a dispute of sorts. And there comes that point oftentimes to show just who is in charge. Uh, someone will finally pull back just the edge of their overcoat, their trench court coat, and they're revealing what? Right? The star. Now this sheriff. Sheriff. Just to communicate who it is in the who's who has prerogative, who has rights, who has authority here. And I think that's that's what Jesus is doing in demonstrating his power over creation or over disease. It's it's a picture of his power over uh, creation and the evidence of his kingdom's presence. Uh, But there's something more happening here in these healings. I think something deeply significant and distinctly Christian. Because Christ's ministry and his coming kingdom really meant also the beginning of a reversal. It's really a reversing of the fall and sin's effects. One of the effects of the fall was not only a spiritual death, a separation as Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, a separation from God spiritually, but physical death. Physical death. Physical pain and disease entered the picture. A creation off track, off its rails. In Paul's words in Romans 8, it's a groaning that our creation experiences, as in the pains of childbirth. And we ourselves groan and long for the redemption of our bodies, Paul says. The redemption of our bodies. And so these these healings here in Matthew 8 and 9 are really precursors or foretastes that Matthew is giving to us of what is to come. What we see in its fulfillment in Revelation 21, in the consummation of the kingdom, of our glory to come. Uh, It's not coincidental that in describing the new heavens and the new earth, if you turn to Revelation 21, that the first characteristic to describe God's people when God dwells with man is that, quote, they will have no more tears in their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. No more pain. And that picture of redemption and salvation from pain should be in our view. It should be shaping our world view as we live in this often painful uh, kind of life. Many of us are probably familiar with John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, which is an allegory with the central character named Christian as he's traveling the, the wonderful but very difficult journey on his way to the celestial city. And in one of the episodes after Christian is helped out by some friends out of a valley called despair and temptation. He climbs up this high mountain, the delectable mountains, and he climbs up a high hill called Clear. And shepherds hand him a telescope. And we're told that his hands are still shaking from the journey that he's been enduring. And even though his hands are still shaking, 
He's able to make out in the distance a picture, a picture of the celestial city to come. And though the journey is going to be long still for Christian, it is that picture that he was able to see that would serve as kind of a hopeful reminder of the glory to come. And, and these pictures here in Matthew 8 and, and the consummation in Revelation 21 are to be pictures for us that are to be in our minds and in our hearts in how we live. They're to fill us with hope, whatever uh, pains that we might be facing. It might be loss that we might be facing or emotional turmoil or a broken relationship or grief or physical illness. We have pictures here to serve as a foretaste of hope in the one who is and and who will renew all things. But then there's something more happening in these healing and restoring stories in these three individuals. It's what these three actually have in common. It's the people that Jesus has been willing to and sought out in some ways to heal. They're all outsiders. All three of these individuals are outsiders. The first is the leper. Look again at verse 2. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Uh, The word leprosy in the Bible is a kind of catch-all term for various kinds of skin diseases. Uh, Some of them could be cured. uh, Some of them could not. But what's important is that according to the Mosaic law, to have leprosy, to have a skin disease, meant that you were ritually unclean before God. It actually prevented you, it actually barred you from worshiping in the temple with the covenant community. It's not that leprosy reflected a moral condition. A person did not necessarily have leprosy because of a personal sin. Rather, leprosy served in a way as an object lesson to communicate the very important separation between what is clean and what is unclean, what is pure, what is impure. And it was this way in so many aspects of Israel's life. The dietary laws, what you could eat and what you could not eat. The clothing laws, what you could wear and what you could not wear. Social laws, with whom you could associate and not associate with. The very temple itself, your life of worship, was defined by distinction and division. You had the most holy place divided from the holy place, divided from the court of women, divided from the court of the Gentiles. And so your personal life, communal and social life, your life of worship was very much designed to communicate a distinction between the holiness of God and your corruption, the purity of God and your sin, the impurity of man. And it was this way with leprosy. Uh, Leprosy was a horrible reality to bear, as some of these skin uh, diseases would eat away at a person's flesh, creating sores, creating boils, causing tremendous pain. And according to Leviticus 13 and 14, due to the contagious nature of some of these diseases, it required a person who had leprosy as they went about their lives when they came near other people 
to call out loudly, unclean, unclean. It would have likely caused in many people a deep loneliness, pain, shame. And yet with kind of a shock, we're told in verse 3 that Jesus stretched out his hand. He stretched out his hand and touched the man. He touches him. Imagine what this would have meant to this man. How long had it been since someone, anyone, had touched him, had shown that kind of affection for him? Because if anyone else would have touched him, they would have become unclean, ritually unclean. But Jesus touches him. Jesus remains clean. And in verse 3, we're told the man is immediately cleansed from his disease. And so you have the pure making contact with the impure. The clean is touching the unclean. The holy is moving into the life of the unholy to restore, to restore him and this disease. And in doing so, he's bringing this man, this outsider, to the inside. What a picture. Is this not true for every believer in Jesus Christ? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you were once unrighteous, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been sanctified, and you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were brought to the inside. You've been washed as people in the Lord Jesus Christ. An outsider brought to the inside. And then you have this paralytic. You have another outsider. Verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Understand the challenging appeal that the centurion is actually making to Jesus because the centurion is a Gentile. He is a non-Jew, another outsider. The only people less clean than Gentiles were lepers. And Jews were not, enter, were not to enter into the homes of Gentiles. We read about that with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And the, therefore you have a predicament. Does Jesus enter the man's house to heal the servant and thus become ritually unclean? Or does he remain clean and not go to heal the servant? Of course, we see what Jesus is willing to do in verse 7. In fact, the word I in the Greek in verse 7 is emphasized. I will come and heal him. It's to stress Jesus' willingness, his extreme willingness to help, to help the man. But the centurion understands the challenge that Jesus is in, and so he replies with these words, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion understands how authority works in his own occupation and his own authority he's able to tell a person go and they go do this and they do this 
And so he calls Jesus to simply heal through his word, remotely from a distance. And we're told again, he's healed immediately. Did you notice that like the leper in verse 3, who said, Lord, if you will, the centurion in verse 6 addresses Jesus in the same way. He calls him Lord, and he simply states his need, his pain. My servant is suffering terribly. Neither the leper nor the paralytic question in the slightest the ability that Jesus has to restore, to heal. If you will. He doesn't say if you can. If you will. And the paralytic does not say, can you say the word? He simply says, just say the word and he'll be healed. And I wonder today if one of our greatest challenges that we have as Christians is not whether we believe in the power, the ability that Christ has, but in whether we recognize our own needs. Do we actually see, are our eyes open to our own pains and needs in our lives? And are our eyes open to the needs of those around us? These stories shine light upon the need to see our own pains and our own personal needs and the needs of those in our midst. And then you have Peter's mother-in-law. We're told in verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. It's a final outsider in this narrative. Jewish women were not allowed as far inside the temple as Jewish men. Gentiles could only get into the outermost court of the Gentiles. Lepers could not get into the temple at all. And after the court of the Gentiles came in order the court of women, then the holy place for Jewish men only, and then the holy of holies, where only one Jewish male once a year could enter. Matthew wants us to see how the Old Testament moves us and points us to the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants us to see how this Christ begins to break down walls. Jesus in this story is the great wall breaker. Removing walls, bringing the people of God together as one People who are outcasts, people who are on the margins, uh, the neglected, how he is bringing those into the inner circle. It's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's not that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, it's an important distinction, or that there's no distinction between male and female. We see it In the Old and New Testament, that's an important distinction. But it's this, that in Jesus Christ, everyone has a seat at the table. Those who have repented, those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ have a seat at the table. And not only a seat at the table, but they have actual access into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God himself. That's what happened at the cross. 
our great high priest, offered himself once for all in atonement for sin. And we're told in the scriptures that the veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place was torn in two through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, providing an access for all in him to come to the Father. This leper, this paralytic, this mother-in-law, this woman, they're not only outsiders, but uh, they're all in pain to varying degrees. They're all suffering. Pain is not fun, but it is a great teacher. It's uncomfortable, but it can be a great teacher. While we were out uh, west on the first day of our uh, vacation, I was trimming some branches to clear a path down to the river where we enjoy boating and time together, and I sliced my finger on a, a rusty nail Needed to clean it out, bandage it up. I thought, that's okay, I'm on vacation. A couple days later, I pulled my lower back. I'm not sure, getting pulled out of the water, skiing or something. It still hurts, but I thought, it's okay at the time. I'm on vacation. A couple days after that, I tweaked my neck. There's actual limited mobility with it still. But I thought, it's okay, I'm on vacation. A day or two after that, my mother-in-law had to drive me an hour to the dentist because one of my teeth was uh, throbbing. I likely will need a root canal. Uh, I, was, I thought I would be okay with, uh, you know, being on vacation, but uh, <laughs> I began to question maybe, maybe God is uh, teaching me something because on, on top of all of that, in my personal devotions, I'm reading through the book of Job. Uh, on top of that, I'm, I'm reading in my personal reading a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. But the fact is, God has had me in a season of learning how to deal with pain for, for actually some time. It's, it's important. It's in all of our lives. What, what do we do with pain? Whether it's a fever, a toothache, or much a greater pain, a paralysis. It's uncomfortable, but a helpful teacher. It calls us to draw near to our Lord Jesus Christ. Pain then becomes an actual avenue, even a gift from God at times, to turn our hurt and our pain, our suffering, into prayers of sorrow, of lament, of trust. Oftentimes, that's why pain exists in our lives. It's, it's to draw us into the presence of our Lord. It's what all three of these individuals have going on. They each reveal the necessity of a personal trust, faith, encounter with the living Christ in the midst of pain. This is the means through which Jesus restores and ministers to us. Uh, the leper says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean in verse 3. If you will. He recognizes that it, it's, it's God's will for him. He, he's yielding to the will of Christ. But it's to Christ that he's trusting. 
And he recognizes that's, that's where his hope is. The centurion in verse 8, only say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus responds in verse 10, no one in Israel have I found such faith or trust. And, and with Peter's mother-in-law, in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 4, we're told that it is those around her that appeal to Jesus on her behalf. It's another act of, of trust or faith. They each reveal the role of trust and they each involve a personal encounter with the living Christ. What caused uh, Mark Vrogop to write this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, was a tremendous loss in his own life and in the, wife, in the life of his wife as she had a stillborn child at 39 weeks. Just days away from the due date, and then there was no heartbeat. So much sorrow, so much grief came, and it set in motion for him not only a process of lamentation and learning how to deal with sorrow, but a process of study and examination of the scripture's teaching on what you do with pain and sorrow, with brokenness. And among the many steps along the way, he wrote a letter to Pastor John Piper. He learned that Piper receives a couple hundred emails a day and cannot respond to people's questions, prayer requests, and concerns, all of them. But he did respond to Mark and his wife's letter. And in his response, Mark provides just one line that John Piper provided to Mark and to his wife. And the words were, keep trusting in the one who keeps you trusting. Keep trusting in the one who keeps you trusting. He is trustworthy. And as we hope, as we rest in the promises of God, yes, promises of a full restoration, a new creation, the redemption of our broken bodies, We're called to bring our pains to him that they might be turned into prayers of trust. Learning to trust. How striking it is that Matthew draws from Isaiah 53 to end this set of healings. The suffering servant in verse 17, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the kind of savior we have, right? That the suffering servant not only bears our sin on the cross to reconcile us to God himself, but he is willing and he bears our very pain. He bears our pain physically through his life and ministry. Let's pray together. And Father, we thank you that indeed in the midst of the tension that we can often feel between our personal pain and your promises that you have provided your son, our Redeemer and Lord, this great high priest who intercedes for us, who ministers to us in the midst of our sin, our weakness, limitations, and our physical brokenness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit to draw us near to you in the midst of pain, 
Lord, that our lives might be defined by prayers of trust, by communion with you. For your grace is sufficient for us, individually and corporately. Oh Lord, minister to us in each of our seasons of need and pain. Lord, that you would increase our, our faith in you. And we pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. If you would